I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. This morning we will hear God's word from Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. But before we hear God's word, let us call upon our Lord and ask for his help once again. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for the beloved sheep that you have gathered here this morning. Sheep you love and care for and delight in. And I ask that you would give me the grace now to watch over and feed your beloved sheep with the good food of your word. Guard my tongue from speaking anything that is not true to your word. And as I speak, may it be the truth of your word that goes forth, which your Holy Spirit takes and applies to us for our good. We ask for your help and mercy toward this end. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, 
who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of our God. We all have plans. Some of us have more detailed plans than others, but even those who like to live life flying by the seat of their pants have some general idea where they want to land. We have plans for our education, physical fitness, marriage, kids, careers, church, vacations, adventures, homes, finances, and probably for Sunday lunch. We have plans for each year and for each day. However, our years and our days do not always go according to our plans. For we have the power to plan, but we do not have the power to determine what we plan. Our plans get delayed, they get disrupted, sometimes they get destroyed. To step into a new day, therefore, is to step into uncertainty. When you get out of bed, you enter the unknown. As Bilbo would remind Frodo, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your front door. You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there is no telling where you might be swept off to. Anxiety often accompanies this uncertainty. Yet the fragility of our plans should not lead us to walk hand in hand with fear. God wants us to step into each day's uncertainty with confidence. But how do we do that? Well, we can do that when we trust that unlike our plans, God's plan is indestructible. It can never be delayed. It can never be disrupted. It can never be destroyed. Even when our plans fail, his plan is fulfilled. And that is the message of Matthias's path to apostleship. You see, Luke could have moved immediately from Christ's ascension to the Spirit's descent, and the story would have made perfect sense. We don't need to understand or know about the events in verses 12 through 26 to understand the rest of the book, because Matthias is never mentioned before, and Matthias will never be mentioned again. So why did Luke include this story 
when he clearly doesn't include everything that the apostles ever said or did in fulfilling their mission. Now, I believe he included it because the disciples needed confidence in God's saving plan as they entered into their unknown future, and we need that same confidence. We need to know that God's plan is indestructible so that we can confidently and obediently step into the uncertainty of every new day. So as we meditate on these verses, we will identify Two serpents of doubt who like to hiss into our hearts. And then we will conclude with three practical ways that we can exercise confidence in God's indestructible plan. So the two serpents of doubt are unexpected delays and unexpected disruptions and destructions. The first is unexpected delays. We like to plan the what. We also like to plan the when. Every plan comes with a timeline. And one reason our plans fall through is because our timeline gets delayed. We want to get married, but we still are not. We want to have children, but we're still not able to conceive. We want to advance in our careers, but no one seems to see our abilities and accomplishments. Delayed timing, therefore, delays our desires, which often hastens a sense of fear and even doubt. Why? Well, for at least two reasons. First, because delayed desire in and of itself is discouraging. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, Proverbs says. One of the most deflating sights you see when you get to your gate at the airport is when the flight status reads delayed and you have no idea when you're going to take off. See, Delays discourage. But second, delays hasten fear and doubt because delays expose our own limitations. They therefore expose our vulnerability. Our inability to control the when reveals our general lack of control. That, if we're honest, we're not really able to control much about our plans. For us, as finite creatures, to plan is not the same as to determine. It is not the same as to powerfully execute. And so when we realize how powerless and helpless we are, we get scared. And we start to wonder if our plans will ever come to fruition, as we admit there are lots of things outside of our control. And so we wonder, will anything we do ever work? Will we succeed? And as we feel helpless, we begin to feel hopeless. If we can't control the when, we can't control the what. 
But the problem is when we interpret our apparent delays to reveal the same limitations in God. We won't trust in the indestructibility of God's plan when we believe that he is subject to time. You remember that the disciples were very concerned about timing. You remember last week's question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples thought they needed to know the when of God's plan in order to trust the what of God's plan. Because Jesus was sending them into the world on a mission of restoration, and so they wanted to know the timing of that restoration. Because they would face persecution, they would face rejection. The gospel was supposed to advance from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, but there would be days when that advancement would seem almost imperceptible. You read through Acts, 3,000 disciples are not added to their number every day. Maybe some days three were added, maybe some days less. And the angels had promised them Jesus would return. He would complete the restoration. Jesus, we know in Revelation 22, promises, surely I am coming soon. But as days and years passed, it wouldn't feel soon. And so his return would feel delayed. God has promised us, just as he promised those exiles in Babylon, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Yet we often cry out, when will those plans be realized? Because the timing isn't what we expected. Christ feels delayed. The blessings feel delayed. And the unexpected delays will often whisper to us, God has forgotten about you. God has left you forever. God is powerless. God is helpless. Maybe God's confused. Maybe God's a liar. Maybe God's plan is failing. But what did Jesus tell his disciples to help them for these unexpected delays? He said in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The timing of our plans is uncertain because we don't have control over times and seasons. The timing of God's plan is certain because he has all control of times and seasons. The flight status at every gate in God's airport always reads on time. We face uncertainty and the unknown because we're limited in knowledge and power. But what is uncertain to us is not uncertain to God. What is unknown to us is not unknown to God. 
Notice Jesus doesn't say, listen, you can't know this because it's just not known. He says, God's just not telling you this, but it is set. For God is infinite. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. And all we need to know about time is that God has set it in place. With God, to plan is the exact same thing as to determine. To plan is the exact same thing as to powerfully execute. God doesn't deliberate. God does. See, we have this process. I, I think about things and then I do them. For God, thought, action, same reality. God knows the plans he has for us because he's already determined the plans he has for us. He knows all time because time bows before God in worship. Time is God's humble servant. And so from the perch of eternity, there is no such thing as an unexpected delay. Like Gandalf the wizard, God is never early, he is never late, he always arrives precisely when he means to. So when the serpent of unexpected delays hisses doubt in your ear, crush his head with the heel of God's promise, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. The second serpent of doubt and fear are unexpected disruptions and destructions. You see, this was the larger serpent that was slithering in that upper room where the disciples were gathered to wait for that promised power from on high. These men and women were gathered because Jesus had called them to essentially be the first core group of the very first church plant. I remember very well the early days of our church plant here in Kalamazoo. When I was called by the core group here to, to be the church planter, those days were wonderful. Those days were also really hard. And one of the reasons was that things rarely went according to plan. And there were any number of things that went wrong. We had to delay when we were going to start worshiping together on Sundays because we didn't have a place to meet. I still remember the Sunday morning when we had the elementary school all ready for us to meet, and I drive on the one of the first Sunday mornings, and there's a driver's ed training taking up the entire parking lot, and we don't have any place to park. I also remember vividly that glorious Sunday where I went in first thing to unlock the door, and my key broke in the door, and we all just waited outside for the principal to come and bring another key. But imagine the scenario for these 120 disciples as they are meeting regularly in the upper room. Their church planter had recently been falsely accused and killed by the civil authorities. And to make matters worse, 
it was one of the 12 key men that the planter had handpicked to be the leaders of this church who had betrayed the pastor and handed him over to the authorities. And it turns out he had been embezzling money from this group the entire time. You probably would not be optimistic thinking that this was one of the church plants that was going to last. Yet here they are, waiting and praying. Jesus' death had to have felt like the end of God's saving plan. How could the death of the Savior be part of the plan for salvation? Surely the death of Christ was the destruction of God's promise. Yet, God had raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus, Luke tells us at the end of his gospel, carefully explained from the scriptures that his death was always part of the plan. Then he said to them in Luke 24, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. See, the Bible is in part the blueprint of salvation. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he, he rolls out the blueprints, he holds it up to the light of the cross so that they can see this wasn't a disruption in God's plan, this was not the destruction of God's plan. This was the plan. The resurrection wasn't God now reacting to an unexpected disruption. God wasn't now turning to plan B or even a contingency of plan A. This was plan A as it was originally drawn up. And he did this because he knew that for these disciples to confidently move forward in the plan, they needed to know that everything that had happened up to that point had fulfilled the plan. That God wasn't surprised, he wasn't confused, he was not adapting, he was not reacting. And this would help them trust that everything that happened to them from that point on would likewise be fulfilling the plan, whether it was what they thought it would look like or not. They needed to understand the plan is indestructible, nothing can disrupt it, nothing can destroy it. But there was still a proverbial elephant in that upper room. And that elephant looming large in their minds and hearts was the absence of Judas. Not the Judas mentioned in the list of the eleven still there. There were two Judases. But Judas Iscariot, the one who had betrayed Jesus. You see, Judas was one of the chosen twelve. Jesus chose Judas. Jesus gave him a share in the ministry. Jesus had said to his disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel's 12 tribes, 
Jesus chooses 12 disciples to sit on 12 thrones. 12 was significant. It represented God's promise that he was fulfilling it all in full, not in part. Yet you notice here in Acts chapter 1, you count them up. There's only 11 disciples in the upper room with the rest of the group. And so they had to be wondering, was part of the promise lost? Had Jesus made a mistake? Had Jesus miscalculated when he chose Judas? Because a miscalculating Christ is not one you can trust. And so the disciples needed to understand the betrayal and apostasy of Judas. And we need to understand it too. For this understanding, Peter followed his Lord's lead. And he directed the disciples to the same place Jesus always directed them. To the scriptures. To God's word. For to know God and his ways, you need to look to his word. Your word, the psalmist sings, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. See, God's word is clarity for the confused. It is a buoy for the befuddled. It is direction for the disoriented. It is light for the lost. And in particular, Peter pointed them to the Psalms. Remember, Jesus had walked through them, Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, showing it's all about me. And so Peter points them to Psalm 69 and 109. Both of these Psalms were written by David. Both of these Psalms were about God's judgment upon his enemies. In Psalm 69, David calls for God's wrath to come down upon his enemies. He prays, may their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. It's a prayer, God, you cut them off completely. In Psalm 109, David prays against those who have betrayed him. And he prays, may his days be few. May another take his office. The prayer is not just for the death of the betrayer, but it is for his place in the kingdom to be given to another. And you see that those who rebel against God, yes, they lose everything, but their loss is not God's loss. He simply gives to another what the wicked forsake. So how do these passages apply to Judas? Well, in two ways. First, what Peter is doing is he is taking the general principles laid out in the Psalms and applying it to this particular case. So he, he changes Psalm 69, 25 from the plural, which is saying, let, let this happen to the wicked. And he makes it singular, saying, Judas was wicked. This is the judgment that comes upon the wicked. This will apply to Judas directly. Judas was cut off. That's why Luke inserts that parenthetical in verses 18 and 19. That's not Peter speaking. They all knew what happened to Judas, but Luke inserts that for us to say he was cut off. He did suffer God's judgment according to God's word. Let me pause here because some think that Luke's account of Judas' death contradicts Matthew's account of Judas's end. 
Because in Matthew 27, Matthew comments that Judas regretted betraying Jesus, so he gave back the 30 pieces of silver that he had received as a reward, and then Judas goes out and hangs himself. The chief priests don't want anything to do with this blood money anymore, so they buy a field as a burial place for foreigners. But Luke, you say, you see, says that Judas acquired the field and that he fell bursting open. And so at first glance, it may look like these differ, but I think they're easily reconcilable. Because first, the chief priests used Judas's reward money to purchase the field. So it's, it's not wrong in this sense to say Judas purchased the field. It was his money that bought it. That's Luke's point. And second, if Judas fell, this would be consistent with hanging himself, because at some point, rope could have fallen and Judas falls and bursts open. The Greek also could mean simply Judas swelled up as opposed to fell headlong, which as he's hanging there, he could have swollen. So either way, they don't necessarily contradict. In fact, they don't. And the greater point is that God judged Judas according to his word. The wicked did not escape judgment. God's word remains true. So the two Psalms first apply to Judas by taking the general principle and applying it to the particular case. But they also apply in a second sense. For David was a type of Christ. The Messiah was to be a, 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 a king like David, to come from his royal line. So the events of David's life in many ways were designed to foreshadow and point to Jesus' life. And even though David wrote these Psalms, Peter knows that all scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired by God's Spirit. So he says, the Spirit is speaking in these Psalms through David. So that doesn't mean David was possessed when he wrote these Psalms or that he wrote these down knowing about Jesus and Judas. It just means that as David wrote about his life and offered his prayers, the Spirit was so moving in a way that David would write everything down in a way that would point to Jesus and Judas. So Peter's point in these Psalms is threefold. First, he's showing that Judas, like the cross, was always part of God's plan. Judas' betrayal didn't surprise God. It was necessary. God's word must be fulfilled because we've seen that whatever God is declaring, he is determining. Judas was responsible for his disobedience, but even his disobedience had to obey God's plan. His failures still fulfilled God's promise. He destroyed himself. He did not destroy God's plan. The second emphasis is that Jesus then didn't miscalculate. When he chose Judas, he knew he was choosing his betrayer. And third, Peter wants to be clear that Judas's share in the kingdom wasn't lost with Judas. This is why Peter uses Psalm 109. Yes, Judas forfeit his place in the kingdom, but the place wasn't going to remain empty. Simply that another needed to take 
his place. As the disciples moved forward, they needed confidence that God's plan was indestructible. Just as nothing can delay God's plan, nothing, not our sins, not our failures, not our disobedience, not apparent destructions, can alter it either. No matter what is happening in our lives, we may always remind ourselves God's promises haven't failed, his blessings haven't been lost, and we may say it is all going according to plan. His plan, not ours. The disciples, therefore, obey God's word, and they do replace Judas among the twelve. Or more accurately, Jesus replaces Judas. They know that God truly knows the hearts of every man, and they trusted God had already chosen his replacement. So they cast lots, which was normal under the old covenant. And just remember that apostles are still at this transitionary period between old and new covenant. So they cast lots, which usually meant they would write names on stones, put them in a container, shake the container, whichever name comes out. That was God's decision. So two potential candidates are presented who met the necessary requirements. First is Joseph, who apparently had lots of names, also called Barsabbas, also called Justice, and then poor old one name, Matthias. Now, the requirements were that the replacement had to have been with Jesus since the beginning of his public ministry and had to have witnessed the resurrection. And so we need to note a few things here. You need to see here that there isn't any possibility today for apostolic succession. The requirements for apostleship can't be met after the first generation of Christians. We also need to see that it wasn't the disciples who chose Judas's replacement. They looked to Jesus to choose him. Jesus chose all of the apostles before his death and resurrection, after his death and resurrection. So again, there couldn't be any plan for the apostles to choose their own successors. They didn't have that right. That right belonged to the king. They were to plant churches and to ordain elders and deacons, but they understood their unique role and office in redemptive history, which would never be repeated. And third, we need to see that Judas was replaced not because he died, but because he was apostate. Death wasn't a reason to choose more apostles. We'll see in Acts chapter 12, James is killed and the disciples don't gather again to cast lots and see who replaces James. It wasn't death that was the problem. It was Judas's apostasy. That's why he needed to be replaced. So I say all of that simply to be clear, since there's still many in Christianity who are not clear on this, there is no such thing as apostolic succession. There are no modern day apostles. That was a unique one period in time office that is not still around today. So in this unique and unrepeatable circumstance, 
The disciples casted lots. They prayed to the Lord, and the Lord chose Matthias so that the plan continues unabated. Unexpected disruptions and destructions are only so from our perspective. That's what God is trying to teach us in this passage. And so when that serpent of doubt hisses, we again may crush his head with God's promise, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. The apparent good and the apparent bad is all God's plan. So how then do we confidently step into our felt uncertainty, trusting in God's indestructible plan? Three brief ways. Number one, we learn to view every apparent delay as an opportunity to pray. From God's perspective, there is no such thing as delay. From our perspective, the timing often feels slow. But what if that apparent slowness was designed as a divine invitation? The first thing Jesus tells his disciples to do is wait. How do they wait? They pray. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. And when they cast lots, what do they do? They pray. Instead of despairing or grumbling when things are taking longer than we would like them to take, let us pray. Because God's apparent pauses are to increase our prayers. To pray is to gain a heavenly perspective. It is to scale the spiritual mountain and improve faith's sight. To pray is to actually feel the hand that is always holding us. To feel its strength and power and know peace. To pray is to let God's indestructibility quiet our felt fragility. To pray is to submit our plans to God's plan. So delays ought to direct us to God in prayer. So as you're driving and traffic slows down, accept God's invitation to pray. When the lines at Costco are really long, accept God's invitation to pray. Waiting is not just for scrolling on our phones. It is for submitting in prayer. And this is true with little delays like traffic and shopping lines, but this is also true with big delays. Prayer is simply learning to walk at God's pace. Sometimes we need to walk a little faster to keep up with him. Sometimes we need to slow down to keep up with him. View every delay as an opportunity to pray. Number two, maintain eternal perspective by looking to God's eternal word. 
See, prayer is not the only way to gain a heavenly perspective. God's word, in one sense, is handed down to us from the heights of eternity. Because all time is before God, all time serves God. We can't see eternity, but we can hear the voice of the eternal one. So sometimes, yes, God's word does generally help us know what's coming. But more often than not, God's word is simply telling us God knows what's coming and it will be okay. Christian, it will be okay. I don't know everything that you are suffering and experiencing right now. But as you read God's word, each and every day, I believe one of the, the messages you should hear from the Lord is simply, it's going to be okay. I've got this. I know you're confused. I'm not. I know that you are afraid. I'm not. God's word is always whispering to God's people, it's going to be okay. When we look to God's word, we see in the lives of those who went before us that everything really is working according to God's will. Doesn't always work according to ours, our will, but that's a really good thing because we don't always will the best. Far more comforting is knowing that God's will will always be done. But the Bible doesn't always tell us how it's going to be done. And so you may ask, how do I know if I'm following God's will? How do I make hard decisions? If I'm not supposed to go out and cast lots, what do I do to obey and follow Christ? Third and finally, obey God's revealed will of command as you walk into his secret will of decree. Obey God's revealed will of command as you walk into his secret will of decree. I used to be worried when I preached that I would repeat myself too often, thinking I've made this point before, I probably shouldn't make it again. But then in my many conversations and counseling sessions, I've been reminded what's true of all of us, we need a lot of reminding. And people will ask me questions, and I'll think, I preached on that before. What? Then I remember, I don't remember most of the things that I say. So why should you remember the things that I say? One elder actually told me, you know, I think it's the points that you've made a hundred times that I'm just starting to get. So for the hundredth time, I'm going to remind you of Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God's secret will of decree, what he has ordained from before creation, is absolutely fixed and set. It's just that a lot of it remains secret. He has ordained all things that have or ever will happen, but he hasn't revealed all things that have or ever will happen. 
His will of decree cannot be delayed. It cannot be disrupted. It cannot be destroyed. So in this sense, it is actually impossible to leave the will of God. However, that doesn't mean we're always obeying his will of command, what he has told us to do and not do in his word. The will of command is, is more general. It's summarized in places like the Ten Commandments or Micah 6.8, where he says he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now again, notice that's very general. God doesn't tell you what college to attend, who you're supposed to marry, how many kids you should have, what job to take, when to retire. Our job is then not to cast lots or like Gideon put out fleeces to try and figure those things out. Our job is to daily shape our minds and hearts according to God's revealed word and will, to obey his clear commands, and then we simply make decisions as best we can without fear, without guilt. Because yes, God can give us supernatural wisdom and discernment in a moment. He does that sometimes. Or I think he just gives us a sense, the right thing to do. But usually God cultivates wisdom and discernment through faithful prayer and study and counsel and experience over time. And this is why older Christians are one of the greatest gifts you find in the church. I remember praying very specifically for many things for this church, but one of the things I prayed very specifically for was, God, we need some older godly examples. We're going to have a lot of young families, lots of people having kids. We need wise voices who have been walking with the Lord for decades to sometimes just remind us, as God does, it'll be okay but also to just share the wisdom that God has given them. So younger believers, find some of the older believers. And I'm not going to say who are the older believers in the church. I'm just going to say I'm not one of them. Find them. Talk to them. Learn from them. One of the greatest gifts I have known in life has just God been God sending me older, wiser believers at every stage of my life who have just been able to counsel me. I can still name them. Judy and Jerry Gothel, Stephen and Marilyn Herwell, Lee and Joella Hogan, and I could go on and on and on from when I was a little boy to still today. And that's in addition to my parents. The church is a wealth of wisdom. When we know how to find it, we find it in his word, we find it in prayer, we find it from learning from one another. So we don't move forward by looking into the darkness of God's secret will of decree. We move forward step one step at a time by looking at what is right in front of us that the light of God's word is shining upon. So I, I always imagine it this way. It's like you're camping. It's night. 
You wake up in the middle of the night, you have to go to the bathroom. This always happened to me when I camped. That's why I stopped camping. Just, I hate walking around at night in the dark, having to find some random spot in the woods. It's not pleasant. But what do you do when that happens? You get your flashlight, step outside your tent, you just start walking one step at a time. The flashlight does not light up everything around you. And you're not going to get very far if you're trying to look beyond the light to what's out there. You discover what's out there as you keep walking and the light will now shine on new places. And you're just taking one step at a time. That's how we live by faith in God's word. God's word is light. But it doesn't light up the entire future for you. It lights up what you need to know so that you can just take the next step. And Christian, that is your goal every day. The next step. You don't need to know what step 50. You just wake up. I have a step I have to take today. God's word will give me the light I need for this day. So our plans are easily delayed, they're disrupted, they're destroyed, but God's plan is indestructible because he is almighty, he is sovereign, and that means we can confidently step into each day's uncertainty, trusting in the indestructibility of his power and plan. Let us pray. Father, we do ask for your grace. Your grace to lead us in the way that you want us to go. And I thank you that we know that even when we disobey, we do not destroy your plan. We can't ruin it. Thank you for that peace. But we pray that you would teach us how to walk in faithful obedience to to you, how to shape our minds and hearts each day and each week so we become more like Christ and we start to, to think and live and love more like Christ. Help us by your word, by prayer, by your sacraments, by corporate worship, by the gift of the saints, young and old. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.